Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen, but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. As a side note, the Matt Watch That podcast is off next week, but if you need a fix, subscribe to the Matt Forgot That podcast, which will be all new. Before we start, for the past couple weeks, I've been commuting back into the offices. While it's nice to see coworkers face to face, I've realized that working from home is the optimal scenario for efficiency, productivity, and worker satisfaction. In the last two years, I've saved $5,000 in train ticket purchases. I also haven't had to deal with rude, loud, and inconsiderate commuters. I'd probably pay the company $5,000 to allow me to stay at home full-time. Is that option on the table? Not only that, to get into the office, I have to wake up at 6.30 in the morning. Then, I don't get home until 7 o'clock at night, and haven't fully digested my dinner by the time I have to get to sleep by 10.30 the latest, to start the process all over again. If you asked me three years ago, could you work from home, I'd say absolutely not. But now, we have the equipment, the technology, and the knowledge that it can work. While it's only part-time from the offices, there haven't been any mishaps over the past two years that could justify the need to be in the offices at all. I understand not everyone feels this way. There are coworkers who looked forward to returning to the offices and be the social butterfly, but that's not why you're being paid, right? If you have children or pets, I can see the benefit of the office to be more productive, but too bad. That was your choice. You wanted them, now you have to deal with them. I'm not saying that I want things to become the net. If I lose my purse and passport and Cozumel, I want someone to be able to identify me. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars watch at your own risk. Three stars standard fare. Four stars worth checking out. And five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie, The Manchurian Candidate, from 1962. So how'd I miss it? Well, it's a movie I've always wanted to see, but it feels like you need to be in a certain mood to watch it. Every so often, I might make statements that have an ideological slant, but when I view a movie, I want to be taken to a different world. So I tend to avoid political or war movies. But this season, I've been trying to make an effort to expand my own tastes. So here we are. 
It was directed by John Frankenheimer, who helmed Birdman of Alcatraz, The Iceman Cometh, and Reindeer Games. The screenplay was written by George Axelrod, who scribed The Seven-Year Itch, Paris When It Sizzles, and was nominated for Best Writing, Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium for Breakfast at Tiffany's. This script was based on the novel by Richard Condon. This is something to look out for. During the fight scene with Henry Silva, Frank Sinatra permanently injured one of his fingers when his hand went through the wooden table. The footage remains in the film. The movie opens with a teaser during the Korean War in 1952. Sergeant Raymond Shaw and his platoon follow their Korean guide, Chunjin, who suggests the soldiers walk in a single line for the next 200 yards to avoid the difficult terrain of swamp and quicksand surrounding them. Captain Bennett Marco expresses trepidation as it goes against tactical procedures, but ends up agreeing with the proposal. As the squad proceeds, they are intercepted and captured by enemy combatants, double-crossed by Chunjin. Sergeant Raymond Shaw is played by Lawrence Harvey, known for the Alamo, Room at the Top, and The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Captain Bennett Marco is portrayed by Frank Sinatra, the chairman of the board, Old Blue Eyes, who starred in Guys and Dolls, Ocean's Eleven, and won an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for From Here to Eternity. Then we cut to the main titles. My only note is that it always amazes me when you watch an older movie, how the opening credits are shorter than the seven production company logos you have to sit through these days. We fast forward a couple of days to Washington, D.C., where Sergeant Raymond Brown will receive the Congressional Medal of Honor by the President of the United States for taking out a full company of enemy infantry and leading his patrol to safety. As he departs the plane, he's greeted by his mother, Eleanor Shaw, who's brought along photographers to capture the moment. Also present is his stepfather, Senator John Islin. The proud parents are acted by James Gregory, who is in the main event, Murderer's Row, and the series Barney Miller, and Angela Lansbury, who appeared in Gaslight, the picture of Dorian Gray, star of Murder, She Wrote, and voice of Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. Raymond is appalled by his mother's actions and believes she organized the Three Ring Circus to help John's re-election campaign in November. After the commemoration, Raymond announces that he's not going home with the family. He's gotten a job at a newspaper in New York as a research assistant to Holborn Gaines, a prominent Republican who's written critical articles about John. Eleanor's not pleased with the decision, and when asked what he could have in common with the dreadful old man, Raymond responds, We both loathe and despise you and Johnny. I'm sensing this family has some issues. Captain Bennett Marco has been promoted to major and reassigned to Army Intelligence in Washington, D.C. He's been experiencing a recurring nightmare, as the film calls it, but sounds like post-traumatic stress disorder, which came into popular lexicon in the 70s to describe symptoms of soldiers returning from Vietnam. Within these visions, his troop appears at an enemy camp surrounded by communists, who brainwashes them. While under hypnosis, Raymond kills one of his own brothers in arms. Major Marco wakes up from his nightmare and reports these disturbing images to army intelligence. They inform him that Raymond has been under surveillance, and there's no signs of deviation from his life and habits. Is there more to Major Marco's visions, or are they just figments of his imagination? Here's a quote without context. His brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry cleaned. The Manchurian Candidate was a very intriguing movie. The filmmakers allowed there to be an air of mystery about the plot, 
They don't spell everything out, so you have to pay attention to the movie. There are moments where you might be thinking to yourself, where is this thing going? But stick with it. I thought the acting was really strong. I've only watched Frank Sinatra in the movie Guys and Dolls, so it's interesting seeing him in a dramatic role. Similarly, my first exposure to Angela Lansbury was in the series Murder, She Wrote, so to see her playing such a convincing villain gave me a new appreciation of her talents. Here, she's certainly not playing Mrs. Potts. In other casting, I wanted to mention the role of Eugene Rose Cheney is performed by Janet Lee of Psycho and Touch of Evil fame. She's the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis and starred in two movies with her daughter. As a side note, there was a scene where the communists are talking about a cigarette, and they quote the Winston cigarette commercial tagline, which I just mentioned on the last Matt Forgot That podcast. Totally coincidental. So if you missed it, subscribe now and listen. I'm not sure when the effects of war on soldiers was first portrayed on screen, but I would venture to guess that this was one of the earliest depictions. Not necessarily the physical ailments, but the psychological. Alphonse! Alphonse! Look that up for me. Now for a little trivial trivia. There was a scene shot at 265 West 52nd Street in New York City at a bar and grill called Jilly's, which was a favorite hangout of Frank Sinatra and owned by his friend, Jilly Rizzo. The cinematography was captured by Lionel Linden, whose filmography includes Going My Way, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography Color for Around the World in 80 Days. It was edited by Ferris Webster, who worked on Escape from Alcatraz, Forbidden Planet, and Blackboard Jungle. The score was composed by David Amram, who wrote the music for Splendor in the Grass, The Young Savages, and one of the many versions of Hamlet. It's a fairly traditional score, orchestra and brass, and the style felt appropriate for this genre. This might be a spoiler, so cover your ears. I'll try to be vague, but when a character was... activated, let's say, the score would change and become more tonal and a little disconcerting. I really like that choice. The runtime is 2 hours 6 minutes. It had a budget of $2.2 million and grossed $7.7 million at the box office. It was nominated for two Oscars at the 1963 Academy Awards. I give it 4.5 out of 5 stars. Excellent movie. If you've seen The Manchurian Candidate and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. Oscar Owen is a magician who I came across on YouTube after watching a couple of Chris Hannibal videos, which are featured in episode 4 of this season. He does a variety of sleight-of-hand magic, but I was interested in the card tricks because of the way he presents them. First, everything sounds better with a British accent. Darling, I'm leaving you. Darling, I'm leaving you. The intros to his videos are well edited and give some context to the story behind the tricks he's going to perform. He explains that some of them have fooled world leaders, including Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, and Barack Obama. He initially performs the trick, and you should be astonished. Then he reveals how it was accomplished, and you should feel ashamed, because you imagine that it's something complicated, but it's usually fairly easy, and something you think you can do yourself. I hope you enjoy these videos by Oscar Owen. 
They're all available in the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about The X-Files. This is a top five series for me, no doubt. But I will fully admit that I didn't get into the show during its initial run. I'm not sure if I was too young to understand the complexities of the storylines, or I just wasn't home on Friday nights. But FX was showing Fight the Future on a programming block called DVD on TV, where they showed extras and behind the scenes before and after the commercial breaks. I really enjoyed the movie and the banter between Mulder and Scully, so I decided to start watching the series. Unfortunately, there weren't any streaming services around at the time, and the internet was still in its infancy in providing useful information, so I wasn't sure where the movie fell within the timeline of the series. As I mentioned in Season 1, Episode 28 of the podcast, DVD releases of full seasons of series were $150 each. Yes, each. I thought that the movie took place between Season 6 and 7, so I bought Season 7 thinking that I'll watch the series going forward, then work my way back to the start. I was wrong, and confused, but that's a normal state for an X-Files fan. But I was instantly hooked. It's the only series that I can think of that crosses genres seamlessly, without losing the core of the show. The production values were incredible, especially for television in the 90s. But it ultimately comes down to the relationship between Mulder and Scully. They have such great chemistry together. It's a pleasure watching them on screen. They're both determined and motivated characters, and their personalities are well-defined from the very beginning. Now, I think having strong characters is more important than stories in a television series, because you're with these people for 22 episodes and multiple seasons, so you have to connect with them on a personal level. Whereas in a movie, story is more important because, unless it's a trilogy or Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're basically done with that world after two hours, so it has to be satisfying. And that's a good thing for the X-Files, because the storylines get a little convoluted as the series goes on, but I will watch a 12th season and a third movie as long as Mulder and Scully are in it. I will follow that duo to the ends of the Earth. And if the series goes on long enough, probably beyond. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and random it's the only series that i can think of that crosses john crosses some genres dope so to see her playing such a convincing villain and won an academy award for best actor in a supporting role from and won an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role from For Here and From Paternity. Whoa, that was mealy-mouthed.